All right, sorry to cut you off early. We are short on time. I have like a billion things to say today, which is kind of normal if you know me. Um, we're talking about Jesus' origin story, and I think the origin story of our own lives or the lives of our hero have a lot to say about where we end up, right? Where we start kind of as a pointer to where we end up. And so when we look at Jesus' story, we see um, so much of his purpose, his destiny, um, and even his nature laced into these first couple, this first chapter of Matthew. And so we look at, and I want to talk today about the birth of Christ on three levels. Um, the human level, and then the divine level or the God level, and then our level. Okay, so verse 18 says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they had come together, they were, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So we have kind of at the start of Jesus' life this scandal. You know, in the Old Testament or in uh, ancient Jewish culture, they didn't go on Tinder, they didn't swipe right, they didn't go on Coffee and Bagel. Uh, Really early on, their families would kind of do this arranged marriage thing, right? Where you have a close family friend, you're like, hey, instead of just being friends, let's be family together. And so like even now, um, I'm like talking to the Kims. I'm like, what if Liam and Annabelle get married, you know? And then, and then me and Nina throw in Lincoln because the three of them are going to be best friends. Like, what if Lincoln and Liam like Annabelle? And then we make this like, like love, baby love triangle, right? And um, being a father now, uh, I kind of like Jewish culture. It's the two dads getting together and deciding the fate of their children. And especially if I were to have a, a daughter one day, I would just really be a fan of that. I'm like, trust me, I can make better decisions. You know, like, I'll, I'll look for a great guy for you. Um, and so that's what they did really early on in their life. Joseph's parents and Mary's parents probably got together. They're doing a play day, and then they're like, hey, what if one day our kids got together? And then as they grow up, um, there's this kind of period where they're somewhat dating. They know that they've been um, in, they're in an arranged marriage. That might not be awkward, hanging out as teenagers. And, um, and they can, either one, as they are growing up together and have exposure together, usually not one-on-one, usually with their families, they have the opportunity to withdraw from this engagement. So the kids do have a choice in it, um, but it's a little bit of a disgrace. So you get a lot of pressure from the family, but if you want to, as a guy or as the, the gal, you can um, break off this prearranged marriage. But from there as both um, the families and the individuals agree to be married, they go into a betrothal stage. And this is like a hardcore engagement. Like the invites are out. You, you put $10,000 on your wedding venue. The food's being catered in. I mean, it is, it is hardcore. And in the Jewish culture, it was even more, um, even more highlighted. So when you are betrothed to each other, you would actually refer to each other as husband and wife, even though you haven't consummated your marriage and, and you haven't had the wedding day yet. 
and you could also hang out together, which was like amazing in the Jewish culture. I mean, in, in the Jewish culture, you could hang out with your mom in public one-on-one. You could hang out with your sister, and that's it, right? Everyone else would just be assumed that, like, she's your prostitute or you're committing adultery. And so when you're betrothed, it's like, it's okay. You can hang out because you're betrothed, you know? And so Joseph and Mary were betrothed to each other, and I just kind of sit in Joseph's shoes for a little bit. I we see this man falling in love with this girl. Um, they've probably known each other for years, seen each other grow up. And all of a sudden, as they're talking about their wedding day, as they're picking flowers and colors and who to invite, right, and all of the wedding drama, um, he starts noticing that her food baby is not going away. You know? I think probably the first couple of times, like, man, she went ham on this on the on the lamb um and uh and then like a a month later he's just like is she gaining weight and then three months and four months and the doubts creep in and finally he concludes she slept with another man and she's cheated on me and i don't know what's going on but i can't marry her And I just imagine his heart being wrecked um, because of how much he loved her. And you can see his love for her persevere through the anger and the jealousy and the bitterness where he says he wants to abide by the law of God, and yet he wants to extend grace, even in the midst of of all of that. And so he decides to divorce her quietly. And and again, that speaks to how important this be betrothal stage is, that you actually have to divorce the person you're betrothed to. So it says, um, yeah, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. So there's that, there's that thing happening on the human level. What Joseph is experiencing, his heartbreak, his love for her, and then you start peeling back, and then you see kind of the God level, that She's found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, right? And then a lot more uh, of that is dropped um, when an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. That doesn't happen every day. And, and he says, Joseph, son of David, again, this reference to his lineage and to um, the Messiah, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what God had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Have you ever met someone and you just kind of think it's like a normal guy or, or a person, and then you discover more about him or her, and you just start pulling back layers and like, and, and you start being like really mesmerized and, and astonished by what you discover. I think 
some of that's happening here, right? You kind of have this normal going into marriage, maybe adultery thing going on. And then you start peeling back layers and you see angels appearing. You see prophecies from thousands of years being fulfilled here. And, and this whole like Holy Spirit conceiving in a vir- virgin thing. When I was um, in, in like, when I was 12 years old, seventh grade, I went to visit my uncle and he's a full bird colonel in the military, one step under the general, which is like a really big title to have. We would drive into his uh, military base and everyone's just saluting his car. They don't even see the man, they just salute the car. And so I work out with him, but it's just my uncle. And then uh, I play basketball. I was really into basketball. I would have loved Arden back then even more <laughs> and like asked him to be my teammate. And um, so anyways, I was working on my handles, working on my three-pointer. And then there's this old guy who comes into the gym. And so he asked me if he could play with me, play basketball with me. And I said, okay. So we played one-on-one and he has a nice like free throw fadeaway, even though he's like 65 years old maybe 70. (laughs) He's like pretty old. And I would cross him over and do layups and stuff like that. And we just had a pretty good time. And then the next week, my uncle said, hey, he wants to play with you again. And we're going out the same time. I'm like, okay. And so basically every week I'd play basketball with this old guy, right? And then one day my uncle said, oh, by the way, he's a three-star general. (laughs) The one guy greater than me in this military base is this man. And even then I was like, but I beat them in one-on-one basketball, (laughs) you know? Therefore, I'm even greater than it. Like, I had no concept as a 12-year-old what it meant to be playing basketball with a three-star general of the U.S. military. And I think as I grow older and have friends in the military, really close friends, it's like, I'm like, I get more and more humbled that this, like, general would want to hang out with me at the age of 12, and he told my uncle, oh, if he ever wants to be in the military, you know, let me know. I'll get him in and stuff like that. Um, Also, another person that I felt this way about is Dr. Ken. So I met Dr. Ken, like, I think a couple years ago. We we tabled at Cal State Fullerton together. We had a few meals. And, um, you know, I have friends that are doctors. It's not really, like, a huge deal to me. But then uh, as I've gotten to know him, I realized, oh, like, he's kind of prestigious, right? Like, there's this, there's this like, billboard on the 55 freeway with his face on it. And, like, last week, I was, like, thinking, we had dinner together. I was kind of thinking about him. And then, like, a bus pulls in front of me with his face. It was, like, the most surreal experience ever. And then a month ago, um, he invites me to the grand opening of a huge uh, building at UCI Medical, and that's when I got my mind blown a little bit. I remember seeing him later, like, who are you, right? Because, like, everyone's, like, paying homage to him. There's, like, like, the president of, like, all of UCI Medical, front to back, from academia through the rest of, of the, the doctors and what, I don't even know how to describe him. But he was, like, acknowledging Ken. I was like, man, you're a big deal, Ken. And then uh, these donors would come up and like three or four of them and they would share, Ken saved my life. We became great friends. Therefore, I gave him $50 million. You know, and I was like, <laughs> was like dude. And then uh, even just last week, um, we were having a men's group. We hang out together every other week, um, married. And then one of the guys was like, oh, I met Dr. Ken and like I cannot call him anything else but Dr. Chang. 
And so when I met him, because he's a doctor as well, right? He's like, this is like the Michael Jordan of like the GI world. And so I call him Dr. Chang, and he says, oh, just call me Ken. And then I said, okay, Dr. Chang, you know? And, um, and I think like that's how this story is starting to unfold about Jesus. It's not just a baby. It's not just a man. It is God incarnate. And as we start peeling back layers about this God-man, I hope that there's this growing sense of awe. You know, I, I don't know how to describe the incarnation or Jesus kind of coming into wor- the world without describing the Trinity. So we're going to try to do that in like three minutes. But um, this is one of the unique uh, doctrines or beliefs of the Christian faith uh, compared to all the other religions that we believe in a Trinitarian God. So there's one God in the middle with three persons, um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so if I were to take an example like me, uh, Joanna, and Nick, right? So we, are, we all share humanity. We are humans, but we're three separate persons or expressions of humanity, right? So even though we share humanity, we have different minds, we have different persons, we, but we share the human nature. So in the sa- same way, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three separate persons sharing the nature of God, that they are all-powerful, ex- they are eternal, they are all-knowing. So they all share those qualities um, about in, in being in nature God, okay? The part that's super confusing, though, is that each person of the Trinity is fully God. And so in the sense of um, they, are, they take up uh, 100% of the God category. So I am not 100% of the human category, right? So there's maybe 7 billion plus humans, and I'm a fraction of that. Whereas God the Father, where if I was God the Father in humanity thing, I would be 100% of all of humanity, which I'm not. I'm only a fraction. But God the Father is 100% of all of God. And the Son is 100% of all of God. And the Spirit is 100% of God. So maybe something that helps me conceptualize that is if the Father ceased to exist, the Son and the, and the Spirit would also cease to exist. Dissimilar uh, to if I cease to exist, Joanna and Nick would continue to exist. So that's what I mean when we're talking about them being 100% God, not only in terms of nature and essence, but in terms of um, oh, embodying that category. Okay? And we don't fully understand that, which is fine, because um, I kind of like mystery. I think... As I grow older, it's so easy to deconstruct everything. Like, oh, I love immersive technology, but I kind of get that it's just a screen really close to my face. Or I love Disney, but it's not as magical as there's really no real magic. And then when I divulge myself into the Trinity and God, that's when there's like these great mysteries that are real and deep and and I can give myself to. and so there's, so when we say that, when we t- talk about Jesus, we're talking about the second person of the Trinity, the Son, coming to earth in a specific time and place, right? About 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. We're talking about 
him as a God-man, but he pre-existed his coming to earth. And the pre-existence of Christ is known as the Logos. So in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, great theology on it um, and poetic at the same time. It's super cool. It says, in the beginning was the Word. So that's referring to Jesus prior to his birth. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He, and this isn't just the beginning in terms of uh, Genesis, but the beginning of eternity, all of eternity. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And even before Jesus shows up on earth, we actually see him visiting um, Old Testament characters. He kind of does like these um, cameos, right? So in Genesis 18, Abraham, he has three visitors, and uh, a lot of theologians, including myself, believe that it's either the Trinity or Jesus showing up with two angels. And they have this really fun conversation where uh, Abraham sees them, and he gets really excited. He's like, let me prepare a meal for you. And so they're like, okay. And, and then they stick around, and Abraham prepares the best meal he can. And then they start having dialogue. And then Jesus, uh, uh, or the Logos, says to Abraham, hey, in a year's time, Sarah's going to be pregnant. And Sarah overhears this from the tent, and she laughs because she doesn't believe him. And then Jesus, or the Logos, says, why, did you laugh? And then Sarah said, because you don't believe, like all things are possible, right, for God. And then Sarah says, I did not laugh because she got scared and embarrassed. And Jesus says, you did laugh. (laughs) And that's how the conversation ends. Nice and awkward. Um, (laughs) It's like, it just stops right there. Next episode. And then uh, Daniel, a couple thousand years later, the exile of Israel. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't want to um, bow down to this big idol of the king. So the king throws them to the fiery furnace, but they don't, like, they don't die. And the furnace is so like, hot that the guards throwing them in die. So that's like how crazy hot it is. But they're just like chilling in the fire, right? And so they're like, what's going on? And they look down, and they see a fourth person. And it says, it looks like the Son of God. And it was. Isn't that cool? And so anyways, Jesus, uh, the word or the logos preexisted Jesus. And then in this moment in history, we see the second person of the Trinity come to earth and become a baby. Isn't that crazy? He surrenders his godness. He surrenders being all-powerful and all-knowing, and, and, and outside of time, and he steps into this space and time, and he's this helpless baby. He's like Liam in this crib and crying, right? Having like separation anxiety. But Joseph's like, I gotta go to work, and baby Jesus is like crying. Or like he's really hungry at night, and I don't, I don't think he's like, man, Mary had a rough night. I already woke her up three times. You know, maybe I'll just like make milk appear in my hand and drink it. No, it says, that, it says that even though he was a very nature God, when he came to earth, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So all of his God powers, 
he surrenders and relinquishes in order to take on our nature. Why does he do do that? I, I think there's two reasons here. The first one, I think, is that there's this relational reason that he's to be called Emmanuel. The people will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, when I first met Ken or when I met this general, they weren't that special to me. And so I started this really casual relationship with them where we could play basketball, and I don't mind, like, breaking his ankles and, like, packing this guy who's like, commands maybe tens of thousands of troops, killers, right, potentially, and I just, like, blocked him. I just blocked him so hard, right? And, like, he fell on his back. I don't remember, but just imagine that. And, like, I crossed him over, and his ankles, like, needed to be wrapped up in ice because I crossed him over so bad, right? And he's the general of the United States, but I didn't know that about him. And so I could cross him over. Or with Ken, like, we could just hang out. I could watch him play basketball because now I have torn ACLs. And uh, we could have a cup of coffee. And then with Jesus, because he's man, because he empathizes with our weaknesses, because he's not just God, but he's God with us, we get him, and he gets us can say that he's our friend. He's our brother. We can go through our struggles and invite him in, and we can pray and, and, and visualize or just feel him next to us, putting an arm around us. He takes on human flesh so that we can have this great high priest who empathizes with our weakness so that we can approach the throne of God with confidence. Because who can do that without Jesus? I think if we met Jesus, the other Jesus first, there's no way we could talk to him like we do. The lion who sits on the throne And tens of billions of people are bowed before him. And creatures that preceded humanity are worshiping him, and they are more glorious than we are. He is all-powerful. I don't think we could talk to this Jesus the same way we talk to him. I don't think we can approach this Jesus the same way we approach him. So he came down. And he allowed us to know him as man. And we can say, we can call him Emmanuel, God with us. What a gift. And then he also says that he's come to save his people from his sin. And that's what the angel commands Joseph to name Jesus. It, um, in the Hebrew, it's actually Joshua, which is a pretty well-known name, um, very common in their day and age. And Joshua is broken down into two words, Yahweh, God, saves. And then, but then Gabriel here redefines that, and he says, Jesus, this Jesus, he is God, and he will save his people 
from what? From their sins. And this defines Jesus as Messiah in a way that's very different from Jewish constructs, right? Their saviors have always saved them not from their sins, but from their oppressors. Moses was a savior from Egypt who has enslaved him. And, you know, David was a savior from the Philistine army. And Samson was a savior who had great strength, again, from the Philistine army. And now they're oppressed by the Romans. And so they're waiting for a savior like David, like Samson, like Moses, who will save them from from Rome. And I wonder when we think about Jesus, do we think about the most important thing for him to save us is from all of these external threats as well, from our poverty, from people harming us, from our, from, um, our boss or giving us something? Or is his greatest act of salvation, salvation from our sins? And is his greatest act of salvation from all those around us, from their sins as well? That even though... We, we love people and we are missional to them. Is that what saves them? Us giving them help or friendship or, fi- or financial help? Or, or is the ultimate form of salvation, the reason why Jesus comes to earth, because he's going to save us from our sins. And his humanity allows him to do that as well. It's in his humanity that he's tempted by sin and overcomes it. It's in his humanity that he's able to represent us as the second Adam, right? The first Adam represents us in, in that sin and gives us all this fallen nature, um, the sinful nature. But the second Adam, Jesus, because he takes on our humanity, is able to represent humanity in righteousness before the Lord. And thirdly, he takes on humanity so that he can pay for our sins, in his humanity, he experienced pain and suffering and death. If he, was, if he came as God, we, he wouldn't be able to die for us. It's in his humanity that he was able to die and bear our sins. So I wonder today, as we think more about Jesus, how can we know Jesus more as a man so that we can approach him? If you're feeling distant from Jesus, maybe he's become deistic. Maybe he's become removed. Maybe he's become just God, and you don't really know how to grapple with him. But would Jesus be a man to you again, your brother or your friend? But also, would we know Jesus more as God so that we would be in worship of him, so that he wouldn't just be a man? He wouldn't just be a great teacher. He wouldn't just be a religious leader, but he would be someone worthy of our lives, worthy to surrender our idols to, worthy for us to be on our knees in worship of him, worthy for us to be astounded by again and again, that he would surprise us. And how do we know him in a deeper way as Savior so that we can receive forgiveness for our sins? That's the core of his mission. That's the core of his ministry. It needs to be the core of our mission in our ministry as well. A savior who forgives people of their sins, who rescues us to give us a new life in him. 
Some of us are, are here, and I just applaud you for being able, willing to come out on a Sunday and be like, man, I just, I'm still trying to learn who Jesus is. I'm not really a Christian. But you're, you're willing to just kind of sit and be open-minded and engage in this kind of a conversation. And if you're asking, like, how do I become a Christian? What's, like, the core of the Christian faith? Do I have to, like, give more money? Do I have to come to church for a year? Do I have to, like, I don't know, wear, like, Christian clothes? Um, this is it right here, guys. If that's you and you're asking those questions, this is it. We believe that God came to earth as man. And we believe he came because he loves, he loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he does, the first part of that is for you to say, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? Thank you for dying to cross for me. God, today we come to you and we just believe there's more to discover. I pray that we would discover you as a man who showed us how to be human again, who relates to us, who we can approach and give a hug to. I pray that we would see you more as God, that you would just continue to unwrap what it means to be God to us, your majesty, your holiness, your righteousness, your power, your creativity. And maybe for those of us who've been Christian for a long time or those of us who are just trying to learn the Christian faith, that you would be the Savior for our sins. That we could come to you today for the first time or for the hundredth time and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me and help me to follow you. If today you want to follow this Jesus, this man God, I would just encourage you to simply say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying the cross for me. I want to follow you. I want to love you. It's that simple. Isn't that crazy? As the worship uh, team starts up, I would love to invite all of us to stand up and take communion. So there's two communion tables in the front and one in the back. And um, we'd love for you to, again, remember this God who became man to die on the cross for your sin. And one of the most tangible uh, ways we do that is by taking the bread that represents his body that was broken for us. We dip it in the wine or grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. Uh, we also have com uh, offering baskets kind of placed around uh, the sanctuary on the tables. And um, if you're a part of our family, we hope that you would respond um, to Jesus' sacrifice for your life by giving back uh, to him. And I think this offering basket 
it's for finances, but it's also for everything else. Like, as we receive Jesus to sacrifice, how are we also surrendering to him our lives, our time, our relationships? And so maybe for some of you that's money, but maybe for some of you that's just more of your life, in love with him, giving him lordship. Would you mind standing with me and partaking of communion and offering together?